I ask that you join me in the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you joyful that you live, yet sorrowful when we are in pain. Father, we long to be a people that celebrate your resurrection. We long to worship you for the sacrifice of your dear son. Jesus Christ. Father, as we approach the message this morning, Lord, may we humble ourselves before your mighty hand. May we listen to the words that you have spoken so long ago through, the, through, through Moses. Father, as we approach this passage, we, we ask the question, who is sufficient for these things? Uh, these glorious truths that you have revealed to us, and left a, or brought us into the light instead of leaving us groping in darkness. Father, as we contemplate these mysteries, I'm reminded that there are churches all across this country and all across this world worshiping you in this moment. They are declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of my friend in, in Texas who is preaching right now the same gospel that we are preaching here. And that same gospel that has been preached for over 2,000 years of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Lord, what a, a continuity that is. Father, we pray these things. We ask that you uh, illuminate our minds, enlighten our hearts, that we would understand what your word has to say, that we would find the assurance that comes from this text, that it would pour forth into our hearts, and that we would leave this place joyfully, with gratitude. Lord, I also would like to lift up the local churches in Sierra Vista. Father, we know that there are some churches that are just struggling to make it day by day, week by week. Father, we pray for them that you would uh, strengthen them in the good news of Christ, that they would uh, proclaim Jesus regardless of what their situation looks like, and that Sierra Vista would become a, a town of joyous worshipers of you. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how can you trust God? That's the, that's the whole message of this passage. How can you trust God? What basis do you have for your faith? Have you ever been challenged before? Has someone ever sat across the table from you, maybe at a coffee place or uh, in your home or in their home and said, how can you possibly believe that? How can you have faith when your relative is dying of cancer and you say, you know what? God is good. God is good all the time. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And they look at you and they say, how can you possibly say that? How can you believe that? I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, how can I trust something that I cannot see? And I just want to look at them and say, well, do you believe that one plus one equals two? But I don't say that because I don't want to be rude. But the reality is, how can we trust something we cannot see? Something we can't feel, something we can't 
touch, something that we can't experiment our way into? This is a good question. And Abraham seems to be grappling with this question. He's struggling with the same question. How can I trust God? Now God reassures Abraham, and then Abraham expresses his faith through obedience. So let's start with a slight review of what we've already talked about last couple weeks. We know that Abraham was told to leave his homeland and move to a new place that God would show him. He didn't tell him where he was going. And so he went, eventually he settled in Canaan. In Canaan, he set up his tents and began to just sojourn there. He worshiped, he built a, an altar to the Lord. And then there was a famine in the land. He went to Egypt, and as he entered Egypt, he lied. He lied about his wife, said his wife was his sister, which led Pharaoh to be attracted to her. And then Pharaoh took her into his household and gifted Abraham a bunch of stuff, camels and slaves. And those slaves later became a snare to him, but we'll talk about that later. And then it comes to light that that really was his wife. And so God put plagues on Pharaoh until he gave the wife back and sent him out of Egypt. He returns to Canaan and there's a problem. Lot and Abraham are not getting along. They're they're not enough room in the land for all the goods that they acquired over their lifetime. So Abraham turns to Lot and says, you choose the land that you want, and then I will take the other side. You choose to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. And, a- and Lot looks out and says, man, that spot over there by that wicked city, Sodom and, and Gomorrah, I'm going to go over to Sodom. And next thing you know, he moves into the city and is living amongst the Sodomites. I mean, the people of Sodom. And as he's living in there, the next thing you know, there's an invasion. And kings from Iraq and Iran, they come down. They weren't, Iraq and Iran weren't in existence at that time. You just know the location. And they came down and they captured Lot and took him into captivity. Abraham grabs his bodyguard when he finds out 318 men born of his house. And he goes and he rescues Lot, captures him, brings him back. And he has this weird experience with this guy named Melchizedek. We talked about that a little bit last week. And then he deals with the king of Sodom. And then we get to our passage this morning. Our passage this morning shows that God reassures his people with a promise. And God promises protection and provision. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After these events, so the events that I just mentioned, after that, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now remember, I'm, I'm saying Abraham because it just reduces confusion. Abram is his name right now. Eventually he will be named Abraham. I'm just going to call him Abraham just for simplicity's sake. And it says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. What is Abraham fearing? I mean, he just went to war against these kings that conquered Canaan. Why did he, what does he have to fear? Well, I think there's a few things. I'm likely he's probably worried about some repercussions from those foreign kings. The word of the Lord in a vision, every time the Lord comes in a vision, it's almost always the statement, do not be afraid, right? When the angel comes to Mary, what does he say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In fact, there are so many instances of this, do not be afraid. They say that there's more than 365 commands to not be afraid in Scripture. 
And we see that a lot in Deuteronomy. Now, that's another story for another time. It's a project I'm working on. And what we see is God says, don't be afraid because interactions with sinful men, when God interacts with a sinful man, terror is what you feel. If you are not of the family of God, which Abraham is kind of in a, in a gray area here, you will be terrorized by coming face to face with God. Even righteous people, such as Isaiah, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he immediately hits the ground and says, woe is me. So when those people say, well, when I get to heaven, I have some things I want to talk to God about, I just laugh. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to be on your face screaming for mercy because the Lord is fearsome because he is so much different than who we are. The Lord says, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your bulwark. I am your protection. What have you to be afraid of? Why are you afraid of human beings? What have you to worry about the opinions of man? I am your shield. The God who made everything is your shield. Man, that hit me right in the heart this week. Why am I afraid of anything? Why am I afraid of someone breaking into my house in the middle of the night? The Lord created that person. He could stop them in their tracks. Why am I afraid of night terrors? What is there to be afraid of? Because the Lord is my shield. God promises to be Abram's shield, his protection. But he also says he's going to reward him greatly. Your reward will be very great. So God begins to make these promises to Abraham. He says, I am your shield. I will protect you. But not only will I protect you, I'm going to reward you greatly. What a great encouragement from God after where uh, the wearying physical battle. I don't know if any of you have been in combat before, but the post-adrenaline dump that you have after a battle, you're exhausted, you're weary. In fact, that's the best time to counterattack is after a battle has finished because the men are exhausted from the effort. And so Abraham had just had very significant physical exertion by going to war and then coming back and returning the people. And he had that spiritual temptation from the king of Sodom. Remember, the king of Sodom promised to give him the money. I said, take all the goods and just give me back the people. And Abraham said, I'm not taking a shoelace from you, boy. I don't need that because you will not be able to brag about making me rich. And so what we see is we should all rest in God's promises, really bank on them, invest in them. Yet Abraham doesn't, does he? You notice that? Abraham doesn't say, oh, good, I'm so relieved by your promises, Lord. Thank you. What does he say? Look at verse 2. But Abraham said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abraham continued. Man, after being scared of the vision of the Lord, he didn't hold punches, did he? He just kept on going. Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Aren't we often impatient for the promises of God? Abraham acts the same way that we do. The same way we are. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we're like, well, I feel really alone right now, God. Right? We, we begin to become impatient. 
And what Abraham does is question the Lord. He is impatient for the fulfillment of the promise. And once again, as I was studying this passage, man, that hit me right between the eyeballs. Right? That, that was a, a message from the Lord to me. Why am I so impatient for the promises of God? When I have a God who promises these things, the one who made the heavens and the earth, who do I think I am to question the living God? Who knows what's good for me? Who knows what's best for me? Who knows what exactly I need and what I don't need? He knows that I will be ruined with the wrong or the right promise at the wrong time. He knows that I will be wrecked with the wrong promise at the right time. So what we know is we need to rest in the Lord. But God then reassures him. So Abraham basically says, I ain't getting any younger, God. You promised me an heir, but I'm not getting younger. I'm getting older. And God reassures him by his word in verses 4 through 5. And once again, in verse 4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to him. Now recognize this. There's a repetition going on here. This, this word, word, is repeating. It's important because we need to recognize that this is a promise by God through his word. God is using his word to reassure Abram. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. So Eleazar, you ain't going to be the heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He looked him, he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Man, that sounds a little sarcastic, doesn't it? Man, if you're able to count these stars, go ahead and start counting, because that's what your offspring is going to be able to do. Then he said, said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's fun to sit out there and try to count the stars. Man, I lose count after about five because I have to t start taking my shoes off, right? And what we see is that the numerous nature of this inheritance that God is promising. So God is reassuring him by his words. He repeats his promise and he really solidifies, no, 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 Abraham, this heir will come from your body. I'm not going to make some magical loophole in order to get you an heir. Your 90-year-old body will produce a child, right? You will have a baby. And not yourself, because this is not weird like that, but his wife will have a baby, right? They will have a child. Now, I want to highlight a couple of things here. One is, notice the importance of children in the ancient world. There are several passages in, in Scripture that bring up barrenness and the difficulty it brings to people. Remember, there's no social security back in that time. There's no nursing homes. You don't send grandma off to a nursing home, right? Your children are to care for you in your old age. If you don't have children, who is going to care for you, right? And so there's a, a level of um, inheritance, financial security, uh, protection that is inherent with having children. Your children are to watch over you. So if you don't have children, you have a very unstable future. The future is, is bleak. And we have this in a smaller extent in our society, right? We can feel the pain of couples who are unable to conceive. 
In that pain, we need to rest on God and His Word for comfort. Now, He may not provide children, but He'll provide comfort. He will comfort us. Another area to highlight is that we live in a world that is unhinged from reality. We have boys playing girl sports. We have men winning women of the year trophies. Man, even men can win a woman of the year trophy. People are confused and stumbling around without truth. People are seeking, by whatever means necessary, ways to gratify their passions. Now, we Christians don't have to be unhinged from reality because we have the truth. We have God's Word here for us. We have this Word from the Lord. We have, this comes from God who cannot lie. God who is the ultimate author of Scripture. Not only that, we, we need, all that we need is in here, in the Scriptures. So we don't have to be unhinged from reality. When the world looks like it's rolling into a crazy direction and people who were once revered are now chastised because of um, their belief that a, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and we see people getting canceled, we need to look to the Word and see what it says. And what we have here is wisdom and knowledge. Not external wisdom and knowledge. We don't need the wisdom of this world. We don't need the knowledge of this world. We have all that we need right here before us. Second Peter 1, 3-4 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, His divine power, talking about God, has given us everything required for life and godliness. Did you hear that? Life and godliness. I don't need the opinions of man because I have the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, based on his character. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. If you would escape the insanity of society, you need to be tethered to the word of God. It needs to be your lifeline. This passage tells us the substance of faith, the object of faith, and the result of faith. Um, I skipped ahead for a minute, but I want to just notice here. This is the end of the first dialogue. Verse 6 ends this first dialogue between Abraham and God. And, it's, and it, verse 6 is coming, and we're about to read, is quoted extensively in the New Testament. In fact, it is the key to understanding saving faith. So if you do not have saving faith, if your faith has not saved you, if you do not know what faith is, if you want to know how to be saved, you need to pay attention. Verse 6 gives us the key, not only to faith in the Old Testament, but faith in the New Testament. Verse 6 says this, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's it. That's the whole thing. All right, time to go, right? Let's unpack it a little bit. All right, it'd be easy to run past this verse because it's sandwiched in between this long dialogue between Abraham and God. But this is important that we pay attention. This is what the, the hinge that salvation rests on. So three books in the New Testament explicitly quote this passage. We have Romans, Galatians, and James. Romans mentions it three times in chapter four. So Romans 4, 3 
9 and 22, and then Galatians 3, 6, and James 2, 23. These are mentioned multiple times in the New Testament to explain saving faith. This passage tells us a few things. There's three main things I want us to get from just verse 6 alone. The substance of faith, the object of faith, and the result of faith. So what is the substance? It says here that Abram believed. Believed. So if we just break down this verse, the meaning becomes clear. Abraham trusted the Lord. Now if you look at this grammatical construction in the Hebrew, it indicates a continual trusting, or he kept on believing. Right? There's a continual nature to this. This is not a one-time thing, right? Say a prayer, get your fire insurance, keep it in your safe, never think about it again, and when the fire comes, you pop it out and say, boom, I'm saved. That's not what this is. This is a leaning, a full-on trusting in the object of your faith. When we think about belief, I always want you to think trust. Our society has changed the word of belief. In American or English, the English language, belief is more of a, a hope, an aspiration, a future thing. But what I want you to see in Scripture is that when it says believe or faith, it means a leaning on or a trusting. That is the substance. The substance is belief or trust or faith. The substance of this saving faith is trust. But what is the object? So Abraham believed, that's the substance, the Lord. He believed Yahweh, the covenant God. So what was the object of the trust? The Lord. He believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord, not in his own word, not in what he had done, but Abraham trusted the Lord, right? He didn't trust that he had seen a baby before, so therefore he's trusting in the works of God, the gifts of God. He is trusting in the Lord, the character, the very character of God. That's what he's trusting in. All right. That's the object. And what was the result? Righteousness. Right standing before a holy and perfect God. The impossible was accomplished. He received right standing, but more than that, he was considered holy before God. So notice how this is grammatically put in our English. It says, he credited, credited it, and I'm going to be able to say this right. He credited it to him as righteousness. It was a credit. Think about that for a minute. It was a credit. God did not say, Abraham, you're such a wise and beautiful man. Everything about you is awesome. You're so good. You're so right. You did everything right. You, you worked so hard to be just. That's not what happened. He said, because of your trust in me, you are now righteous. Because of trust, you are made righteous. Not because of anything good within Abraham. In fact, we don't even see Abraham being gifted righteousness. It's imputed to him. It's been translated over to him. He received this right standing before God. He was considered holy before God through the substance of faith and by the object of the Lord. 
And in what way did God do this? By crediting it to him. Now, let's think about this for a minute. A bank will float you a line of credit based on something, right? If, a, if you were to go in and say, I want a million dollars, they would say, okay, what do you have as collateral? And you might say, well, I have this $200 house. Okay, no houses are $200, I get it. But let's say you, you, you bring your house along and say, yeah, that's not going to do it. Well, you might say, well, I can earn 100000 a year. Here's my job and my bank statements. And they might, they might say, okay, that's closer. I can give you a 50 grand loan, right? And you begin to understand this credit process. You have to have some ability to repay it or some collateral. Otherwise, the bank is going to go under if they give a bunch of loose loans, right? God does the same thing for Abraham. The collateral is Jesus Christ. That's what the New Testament tells us. The collateral for Abraham is Jesus Christ. We see that in the book of Hebrews. We see that in Romans. That's what the whole Romans passage is about, that the Old Testament saints are saved on the promise of God by the collateral of Jesus Christ. It is credited to them as righteousness. The New Testament makes it very clear. It's the perfect credit of Jesus Christ the one person in all of history that is without sin died so that our faith will be credited as righteousness. For Abraham, it was a future credit. For us today, it is a secured reality. We can look back to Christ's atoning work and receive it as credit now. So it's not something we have earned. It's not something that you have worked for. It's not you're doing good deeds that gets you this line of credit. It is fully, completely, utterly on the work of Jesus Christ that you have no effect over. And the way to get that line of credit is by trust. Trusting in the completed, finished work of Jesus. Resting on His promise. So how can you apply for this reality? By faith. By trusting fully on Jesus and His work on the cross. Now, if you have not done this, you do not need to delay. But I would encourage you to set up a meeting with me this week so we can talk about what it means to have saving faith. I would be happy to talk to you about how does this credit happen, how your wickedness is imputed to Christ, is given over to Christ, your bad credit, the sins that you have committed, the rebellion that you have against the holy and perfect God, is translated onto Jesus Christ. It is poured out on Him, and His good credit is given to you. That's all it takes. It is imputed. That's a fancy word that we like to use. It is completely and utterly given. So there's nothing in you that deserves this. Abraham probably is the least person that deserved to be credited with righteousness. This man lies about his wife. This man commits adultery for all intents and purposes, having multiple wives. And what we see here is that the Lord credits it to him as righteousness. So if you want right standing God, you must trust in the one way to get that credit, Jesus. God doesn't leave Abraham with just this promise. He even goes further. God guarantees His promises by His covenantal promise. He ups the ante a little bit. He uses a 
glorified pinky promise, right? He uses something more. So God solidifies his promise to Abraham with this solemn ceremony called a covenant. Now, in our culture today, most the most visible example of a covenant is in the marriage ceremony between when two people enter in to the covenant of marriage, right? You've heard that language before. You are promising to have and to hold for in sickness and in health, right? Forever until death do us part. So when we begin to doubt in the promises of God or even in God, we can be reassured by his covenantal promise. Look at verses 7 through 11. Now, I love how gracious God is to Abraham by reassuring him with a covenant. Verse 7 begins, it says, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So he is re-expressing the conditions of the covenant. This is going to be your family's land. Verse 8, Abraham butts in again. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Man. So God announces his attention, and, and Abraham's like, let me get some verification on that. How can I know it? Man, isn't that the question that you and I ask so often, though? I mean, I, I like to kind of mock Abraham a little bit because I'm really mocking myself. Because when God says, I promise you this, I'm like, hmm, how do I know? All right, show me. I'm not from Missouri, but I, I feel like I should belong to the show me state, right? Show me what you mean. Abraham asked for verification. How can I know that you will do this thing? How will I know that my faith will be credited as righteousness? How can I know that you will comfort me when I am childless? How can I know? And God answers in verse 9. Man, God is so gracious once again. He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Notice the animals that are being used there. Those are the same animals that Moses commands the Israelites, to bring in sacrifice to temple worship. These are the same reminders of the covenantal promise of the people of Israel. So what God has done is he is using these animals as symbols to something, something greater. And if you know anything about these ancient history packs, a, an ally, if you want to make an alliance with someone or a treaty, the bigger party will do a ceremony like this, a covenantal ceremony. And what they're essentially saying is, may God cut me in half like these animals are cut in half if I ever break this promise. So it's a, it's a very solemn promise. It's a promise that I should be destroyed if I ever break this, as God is my witness. Now God cannot swear by something greater than himself because God is God. And so he uses these animals... And these are the same animals that they use in the temple as a symbolism of a covenant maker who doesn't keep his promise, will be broken. It's a very solemn promise, a promise that the people of Israel are reminded every time they go to the temple to worship. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever made a promise as a kid? How do you make sure that that promise is, is certain? 
you get that pinky out, right? And you go to your buddy and you say, pinky promise that you will do this thing, right? And and I think, I don't know if you guys did this, but we said, like, if you break this promise, I'm gonna, your pinky's going to be broken. Maybe I was just really violent as a kid. I don't know. But, but that, was, that was the symbolism, right? If, if you break this promise, you've got to break your pinky. Now, I don't know of anybody who broke a pinky, but, but that was the symbol that we were serious. We really meant this promise. But it's the symbol. We have a symbol here in the covenant making. So you may ask, how do we know God will credit us with righteousness? In the same way as God establishes a covenant with Abraham, we see something similar in the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, we just recreated it, didn't we? We just recreated the covenantal promise of our Savior this morning when we took the bread and the blood. In fact, Jesus Christ was broken for us. He is the very symbol of the covenant. He was broken for you and for me. Imagine the blood of cutting these animals in half. Blood everywhere. The shedding of blood for the remission of sins. What does Jesus do before his death? Well, he broke the uh, the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. I'm so thankful for Barney leading us through this covenant renewal ceremony. And he said, this is my blood spilt out for you. This is my covenant in my blood. So what Jesus did symbolically with the bread and the wine, he did physically on the cross, a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That was a covenantal action, a covenantal promise. So when you are in doubt about God keeping his promises, look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ. That's why we do communion uh, communion often. We're remembering the covenantal promises that God has promised to us through Jesus Christ. But then we see in 12 through 16, I'm going to have to go very fast, so buckle up. Suffering and death do not nullify the promise. 12 through 16 we see this weird situation where Abraham is put to sleep. He gets tired. The sun was setting. A deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly a great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. This is talking about Egypt. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the 14th generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This this prophecy concerning the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt comes with a promise. So yes, they will be enslaved. Many of them will die. Ultimately, this land will come to them. Abraham is promised a peaceful sleep, a peaceful rest. Now, I really want to highlight one thing. These Amorites, their iniquity has not yet reached its full measure. God is judging the people of Canaan, but they are not quite ready to be destroyed yet. And think about that for our sinfulness sometimes. That God judges us and says we are not yet ready to receive the judgment. Just FYI, it could happen at any moment. 
God reassures Abraham that suffering and death do not nullify his promises. It's also a reassurance for the Israelites who read this. Remember, Moses is writing this to the people of Israel right after they have come out of Egypt. He is letting them know this has been prophesied. This is all part of the plan. This is None of this is an accident. God has a plan. And then the Lord swears by himself that his promise will be realized. Look at verse 17. When the sun had set, it was dark. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the, Ken- the Kenites, the Ken- Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hephites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All this land will belong to your people. That's the promise. But notice how he promises. This, you know, covenants help us to know, to know that God will do a thing. It's an unbreakable promise because he is swearing by his own character. If God makes a promise by his lie, unchanging, if he breaks a covenantal promise, that means he is not God. That means he is not who he says he is. That means he is not the God that we believe in. God's presence with his people is promised. Look at 17. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Do those two symbols remind you of anything? What did the Egyptian or the, the Israelites experience in the wilderness as they left Egypt? What guided them by day and by night? Pillar of smoke by day and a flame of fire by night. This same symbol is here marked out that he will swear by himself, his own character. Now, obviously, the, the Lord himself is not going to walk through and make the covenantal promise because they would, what they would do is they'd cut these animals, they put, and then they would walk through and make that promise. It was very symbolic. It's kind of like the man and the wife walking down the aisle separate, and then they leave together, right? Um, the same thing, we have a covenantal promise walking down the two broken uh, animals here. The pillar of smoke... And the pillar of fire is what lead the people of Israel in the wilderness. This is God's presence with his people. The Lord swears by his own presence that he will accomplish this promise. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus Christ? God became flesh and dwelt amongst us, as the Gospel of John says. Okay, so let's finish up. How can we have confidence that God will keep his promises to never leave us or forsake us? That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, as 1 John 1.9 says. Or, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That's a promise. Or, those who seek him will never be cast away. Or, the great promise of come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember our impatience? That plays in here. How can we know these things? We can know it because God promises it by His covenant. Through Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection, we can have hope because Jesus is alive today. We can have faith based on the assurance of Jesus. This is not blind faith. This is real faith. Faith is taking God 
at His Word. Will you take God at His Word today? Lord, we thank You for this passage. What a powerful reminder of what it means to have saving faith. Taking God at His Word. Trusting in the very character of God. Father, as I think about Christ, I think about Jesus, I'm reminded that when we see Jesus, we are looking at the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ dwelt amongst us, lived a perfect life, and died. Lord, He was testified by eyewitnesses, and it was written down in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who this Jesus was, that He died and was resurrected. And not only that, it was spread throughout the world like wildfire. And not only that, but today there are people who are willing to die for this truth. And they all, the ones that, that lived, your disciples, Jesus' disciples, died for this reality, for the truth of Jesus Christ. The covenant maker, the one who is the covenant broken for us, created for us, credited to us as righteousness, imputed, not earned. Lord, I am so humbled by this reality that we cannot earn our salvation through any merit, any works. Coming to church doesn't save us. Only the precious blood of Christ poured out for us in this covenant. And to enter into the covenant, Lord, all we need is trust. Trust in the living God. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who hears these words, that they would be convicted of their wicked sin. They're, they are in rebellion against the, you, against you, the perfect God. And that they would turn from that and receive the free pardon through Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, who we worship, who we trust. Father, what a great day of worship this has been, where we worship the living God, we mourn the leaving of our friends as they go out, uh, but we celebrate not because we have no hope, but we know that we will see them in this life or the next. Praise God for these promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.